make your way to John chapter 4 as we continue on just really looking at the life of Jesus here and um, and I love this passage here because what we really begin to see here in John chapter 4 is and not that we haven't already, but Jesus really living on mission. Everything that he did had, had purpose. He was living very missionally minded. And so that's what we're kind of titling our message here, man on mission. And so here's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 4. And if we, Lord willing, get all through the, these 26 verses here, this first section, we're going to see the mission. Verses 1 to 4, we're going to see the message and then the ministry. The mission, the message, and the ministry. Here it says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So you'll recall, remember that in the previous chapter near the end there, there was a bit of a dispute that arose between the Jews, some of the religious leaders it would seem, and John the Baptist's disciples. And it was a dispute over purification, most likely dealing with baptism. And what was the dispute all about? They were kind of wondering, who's this guy over here that's got all these people coming to him? And John's ba- uh, disciples came back and, and they're like, John... What should we do? Because here's Jesus baptizing and everybody's going to him. What are we going to do? And so this is creating a bit of a a friction, a bit of a conflict. And it could be that the religious leaders are seeking to kind of stir up a little bit of division or trouble. You see, it was the job of the religious leaders really to step in and kind of investigate anytime that there's somebody on the scene that's got some people following them. That's beginning to gather a bit of a crowd. They want to make sure, is this guy legit? Is he kosher in the things that he's communicating and saying and doing? Is this guy one of us or is he an imposter or, or somebody that's just out for his own, uh, his own desire? So they had to step in and kind of make sure what was going on. That's what's sort of happening here. But we see as this is going on that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus kind of, here's all this that's going on. And, and, and John kind of makes clear, it's not really Jesus baptizing, but his disciples. But Jesus gets out of there. He doesn't want any part of that. Now, now why is that? Here's the reason. Because Jesus was operating on a very divine timetable here. All right? He's being led of the Lord. Now, what would happen is if the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the various, you know, Jews in that kind of category came in and started to question Jesus began to say, who are you? What are you doing? Well, right away, Jesus knows, you know, their hearts. And he knows what they're going to be, you know, doing here. And so Jesus knows he's going to get into a, a, a battle with these guys he doesn't need to get into. They're either going to come along and say, well, if you're the Messiah, great, let's get you going in that job. Or they're going to say, no, no, you're not the Messiah. We know everything about you. You're not the guy. And they would seek to stop him. And we know that's exactly what the religious leaders did. They were the ones that were in opposition to Jesus' ministry. And so if they came in too soon and tried to elevate Jesus or tried to take away, you know, what he was doing, well, that would obviously just kind of undermine, shortcut, and, and stop this ministry prematurely. And so Jesus just moves away from that. He's not out 
for trouble. He's got a divine timetable that he's following. He's got work to be done. And he doesn't want anything to stop that or thwart it. That's why, you know, when Jesus oftentimes in the Gospels, you'd see him going and healing somebody. They get healed. There'd be a great work. And what did Jesus say? Make sure you go and tell nobody. You listen to that, you go, wait, what a second. That doesn't make sense. Why shouldn't they go and tell people, isn't this what you want to get the, the good news out? Well, if they went and spread the word, somebody's just gone and healed me, done something incredible. Is this the guy that we've been waiting for? Well, again, that would just cause all the more people to flock around Jesus and kind of impede the ministry from flowing even in a greater way. So Jesus was very careful as to what he's doing and what's happening, making sure that nobody's kind of trying to promote him too early, prematurely before, you know, he establishes the work that he's come to do. He's a man on mission here. So it says something interesting that as he departs to, to Galilee, it says there in verse 4 that he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Now that's a very interesting phrase. Because you see, to, to go to Galilee from Judea, well the quickest way of course was to go through Samaria, but this isn't what the Jews did. All right, Israel is basically divided into, into three parts here. You've got Galilee in the, in the north area. You've got Judea, where Jerusalem was, in the south. And then in between these two, you've got Samaria. So kind of divided in three areas. But the Jews despised the Samaritans. And they wanted nothing to do with them. So what they would oftentimes do is if the Jews were going to go up to Galilee from Judea, they would kind of take this route. They would go over. They would go over the Jordan River into Perea. They'd go all the way up, cross over the Jordan River again, and make their way up into Galilee. They would avoid Samaria at all costs. The Jews viewed Samaritans as unclean, and to travel through the land would then defile them. So, what's behind all of that? What's behind this kind of animosity and, and division? Well, it goes all the way back into the Old Testament and, and, and into the time of... When the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. 722 BC, the Assyrians came in, invaded Israel. And they led um, many of them away into captivity. Back into Assyria. But then what they did is that they would send various foreigners back into Israel. To kind of repopulate the land and sort of assimilate in the land there now. And that's kind of the strategy that the Assyrians did. Is to kind of sort of, you know, wipe out, phase out a nation. They would just begin to populate it with different foreigners and what happened then is that the jews some of the jews that remained in israel they began to intermarry with these foreigners and so they created this kind of mixed race that became known as the samaritans so the jews they saw the the samaritans as kind of traitors they've intermarried they're half breeds now they're unclean they've allowed some of the idolatry of the assyrians to come into land so they began to have even a mixed religion and and, and form of worship. So the Jews saw the Samaritans as just not a good people. Didn't like them. Didn't want to be near them. They just completely avoided them at all costs. So with all that in mind. Why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? Well Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Because of one woman there. Think about that. One woman. God had a special appointment for Jesus. And it was an appointment of one. 
I, I think that is so awesome, so wonderful that Jesus isn't sitting there going, hey, listen, I'm just interested in numbers. I'm just interested in gathering a following. I can't really take time out just to minister to one. No, we've already see, seen Jesus doing that in, in chapter three, that, that conversation he had with Nicodemus. And now he's going to go into Samaria for one person. I think that's so awesome, so wonderful, because, you know, we can oftentimes miss the boat if we begin to think that success in life or success in, in ministry is all about big numbers. I think it's probably more important that we learn to have the heart of God, that we would be willing to do the smaller, quieter things, even if it only involves one small, seemingly insignificant person, because, because that's a person that, that Jesus came and died for. That God loves intimately. That God desires to bring them into a right relationship with him. It's always worth it. Regardless of numbers. Whether it's one or a hundred. That we come and just seek to point people to Jesus. And so Jesus is doing just that. I love the heart here behind this. So it says in verse 5. As we now begin to look at the message that begins to unfold. And this is great. What I love about going to the gospel of John. is because we get to kind of peer into some of these very intimate conversations. One on one that Jesus had with different people. We get to hear his heart. Kind of his, his style of ministry. What, what he does there. I think it's so cool. Verse 5 says. So he came to a city of Samaria. Which is called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this place that he stops at is a place that has some pretty important biblical and, and historical significance. It was a place that Jacob had bought a parcel of land there, given it to his son Joseph. On that plot of land, there was a well there that goes all the way back to, you know, their, their patriarch Jacob. So it's a significant place that Jesus comes and stops at. And notice this. It says there in, in verse 6 that Jesus, therefore, being wearied, tired, he's exhausted. You know, I don't think we too often have a hard time wrapping our brains around the deity of Jesus. But I think at times when we think about the humanity of Jesus, we can struggle on that a little bit thinking, how does that work? How does that look? Yes, Jesus was 100% God. But he was 100% man. And that's sometimes where we really have a hard time comprehending what that looked like, what that was all about. But here's Jesus. He's a man that comes. He experiences the pain and difficulty of life. He's living in a human frame. He was prone to exhaustion, hunger, thirst. He went through the very kinds of things that, that you and I go through. He wasn't just walking around ministering like the Energizer Bunny where he's just like, hey man, I can just keep going. I don't need to see if I can just keep ministering. Go here, go there, do whatever it takes. No, there were times where he needed to rest. Remember when they're out on the boat and a storm comes up, what's Jesus doing? He's there sleeping. The disciples had to come away, come up because of a storm that was brewing. So Jesus was a man that went through the things that you and I went through. It says in Hebrews 4, verse, uh, verse 14 to 15, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. I'm so glad that, that we serve a savior who understands my weakness, my shortcomings, my, my frame, that, 
When I'm weak, he's not sitting there going, oh, come on, just chin up, buck up here. You just need to get it together. He understands. He's been there. John starts off saying that the word became flesh. Jesus came and he clothed himself in humanity where he experienced the trials of life, the things that, that we felt. He went through the pains that, that we go through. And he comes alongside in your weakness with understanding now. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I love how Jesus handles things here. Because he goes into Samaria. He sits down at a well. And it says it's the sixth hour, which um, most likely we're looking at noon. Based on the, the Jewish time here, six, uh, uh, the sixth hour was noon. So it's the heat of the day. It's the hottest part of the day it's an unusual time for people to be going to a well to be drawing water typically people would go in the morning time or the evening time but it's here the sixth hour that jesus comes and he sits down by a well and it just so happens that it's at this time that this woman comes look at what we read in verse seven a woman of samaria came to draw water and jesus said to her give me a drink Because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, like I said, this is a very odd time to be coming to a well at all. Nobody would come in the hottest time of the day to grab water and carry it back to your village or wherever you were at. Yet it's at this time that this woman comes. Many believe that this is a immoral woman. She's kind of been around. So she comes... At an unusual time, so that she doesn't have to gather around when other ladies might be there, where she might be getting the, the, the scornful kind of looks, the, the gossiping, the whispering going on behind her back, just the condemning gaze that no doubt she was experiencing from other people. It's as though this woman's a bit of an outcast, so she's coming at a private time when nobody else is going to be there. And as the woman comes, Jesus says, Give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, we've all been through the whole, you know, what would Jesus do? And we like to go, hey, you know, Jesus in his evangelism, what would he do? I would say probably not try this technique right here when you go up to somebody and just say, give me a drink. Hey, Jesus did it. Worked for him. Give me a drink. Let's have a con- Don't try it. I've tried it. It doesn't work too well, but it worked for Jesus here, but a different day, of course. But you see, in this case with Jesus, it it spurred on this kind of curiosity of this woman here. She was surprised to see, first of all, a Jewish man come and speak to a Samaritan woman. And even asking to use her utensils to give him a drink, that would be crossing a lot of social boundaries here. You see, Jesus is using this kind of illustration to draw her into her need for salvation this wasn't about jesus being thirsty this was about the thirst of this woman and the need she had apart from a right relationship with god jesus wasn't there for himself he was there for her he wasn't concerned about his thirst he was more concerned about her spiritual thirst and i wonder how often i'm just living my life to satisfy my own needs. What, what could it be like if, if we were living life with an eye on what others are dealing with, going through, looking to minister into their situation? I mean, look at the contrast in this account that we see because Jesus is sitting at a well, the heat of the day, he's sitting there, it's not comfortable, but he does that so he can speak to a woman with a spiritual need, whereas the disciples, they're off, you know, going to the city to buy food, right? 
Now I get it, food's important, that's, that's a necessity. But how many times were the disciples being driven by a physical need rather than a spiritual need? It's like when, you know, Jesus said to them one day, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they all start panicking, oh no, it's because we forgot bread. He's accusing us, oh man. And they're, again, they're just being driven by physical need. And yet Jesus is there, not for himself, but for another, to come and supply something for her that she would... Never get out of just a, a well. Look at verse 9 here. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now this really becomes the key to like understanding this passage. In addition, the, the place in this account, right after the account of Nicodemus in chapter 3, I think is so important. Because when you compare the two individuals, Nicodemus... And this woman at the well, you discover two opposite people in opposite situations who both desperately need the same thing. It's Jesus. See, it doesn't matter who you are today, where you've come from or what you've done. There's a universal need in this room because there's a universal problem here. And that's sin. We all come on a level plane now because of that. The only one that can do something about it is Jesus. He's actually the only one who has done something about it. See, these two people, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, couldn't be more different. Different gender, different social status, nationality. Nicodemus had everything going for him. This woman had everything going against her, it would seem. But Jesus reaches out to both equally to give them the same remedy for their condition. It's the offer of life in him, salvation in and through him. So it's a, a great parallel that we see between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman to kind of give us an idea that here's a religious guy, seeming like he's got it all together. The teacher of Israel, highly respected, this other woman who is despised, outcast. And yet Jesus comes to both with the same offer. Jesus is not at all looking to save certain people and leave others out. The gospel is available to all, as we saw so clearly in John chapter 3. So this woman, she's a bit surprised to have Jesus, a Jewish man, speaking to her. Not only speaking to her, but asking her for a drink. Not only would that have been defiling to a Jewish person to touch someone, uh, uh, something of a Samaritan, but for a, a man simply to be speaking to a woman in this day was shock enough. Now, remember the situation that women were in during this time of history. Women were not considered people or citizens. Plato, Plato wrote, I thank the gods that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. I thank the gods that I'm a free man and not a slave. And I thank the gods that I'm a man and not a woman. Now, at this time in India, the, the teaching of reincarnation was that bad people became dogs, worse people became spiders, and really, really bad people became women. That was the teaching in this time frame here in India. And in Judaism, most men and certainly all rabbis refused to even talk to women in public, even their own wives and daughters. Some of the Pharisees wouldn't even look at a woman publicly. They would close their eyes if a woman were on the street. And that sect became known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they'd walk around with their eyes closed and bang in the walls. So that's how seriously they took it. Now, I just want to clarify something. I believe everything that Plato said um, no, I'm kidding. Just if you're seeing if you're paying attention here. I don't. I don't. But listen, I, I say all that to say it's funny that 
For some reason in our society today, Christianity has gotten a very bad rap as being the suppressors of women. That the Bible is archaic with stuff like women submitting to their husbands and, and all that kind of stuff. But can I just say that Jesus and Christianity has done more to elevate women than any other group in history? It's the Bible, when the Bible is written, and Christianity and the work of Jesus that sought to bring women onto an equal plane with men. And yet it's the view from the world so often that Christianity has sought to kind of undermine, suppress, and, and downplay women. And that's just not the case. Not at all. And here's Jesus speaking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. I think there's a lot of grace and love here being shown. So this woman is obviously shocked that this is taking place. And then Jesus says to her in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus, he just cuts right to the chase now and lets her know that he's speaking of something more than just the natural. She's getting all caught up in How is it that you are asking me for a drink? He says, no, listen, if you'd actually known who's here before you and the gift of God, you would have asked for a drink yourself. Now, what is this gift of God that Jesus seems to be speaking of? Well, this is speaking of salvation. Speaking of this new life in Jesus. It's what he was speaking about to Nicodemus regarding being born again, born from above. This new life that comes in through the work of the Spirit. This is what this woman so desperately needed. She needed new life. She needed a fresh start. And if she knew who it is who says to you, well then she would have realized that there was a lot more riding on this than just giving a man a drink. And really catch this. Because Jesus says, the gift of God You know, a gift is a gift because you didn't work for it or earn it. It's because somebody chose to bless you. A gift is not something that you have to earn. If somebody came up to you and said, Hey, I've got a special treat for you. Bought you a gift. But if you can just go and wash my car first, once you do that, then I'll give you the gift. It's not a gift anymore. That's a payment. It's not a gift. A gift is something that you receive Without having to work for it, earn it, it's a gift. It's a work of grace. That's what salvation is. It's something that you receive independently of what you've done. You you can't earn it. It's given to you freely by God's grace. And like any gift, all you have to do is simply receive it. Take it in. So those that ask for it, they receive it. Or as Jesus says, you receive this living water. This is how Jesus begins to kind of define this. Now, this woman would have interpreted this living water, again, in a very natural way because living water to them would have spoken of running water, flowing water, water that was kind of active and moving. It was like a spring, flowing water. Water that hasn't been just sitting in a well. Living water would have been something that's fresh. It's enjoyable. It's not stagnant and still. But we also know that Jesus meant a whole lot more when he spoke of this living water. A whole lot more than just fresh water. Because he would have been implying the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence in those that receive that free gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit coming in that, that now brings in this, this newness of life. Jesus said in John 7, 38-39, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is speaking of this living water as the Holy Spirit that would come in, and it would be like just kind of fountain of living water flowing in them. Now Jesus is saying all the right stuff here to this woman. I mean, obviously he's God. He knows, he knows what to say, what to do. But this woman is still not quite tracking with what Jesus is saying. The lesson for us guys, I think, is clear. That even if you were God, women just aren't going to get you. Okay? That's the lesson. Just, that's the lesson I, I would take liberties in with the ladies on their ladies retreat right now. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, come on, joking. Don't groan on that, okay? <clears throat> but look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now this woman is thinking of all the things that seem to be hindering her from receiving this this living water, receiving this gift that Jesus is offering. That's what a lot of people do when, when it comes to receiving Jesus. They come up with a number of things that would... Seek to kind of excuse them or, 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 you know, stop them from having to take these steps. You know, like, well, what about Noah and the ark? Come on, really? Did he take two animals ever? How did God really create everything? And they, and they come up with all these kind of, you know, questions to sort of like say, I, I don't want to deal with this right now. Rather than just simply receiving. This woman's kind of doing just that here. She's thinking... He doesn't have the right equipment to give her this gift. The obstacles are too great. The well is deep. And and he's not the the right guy. Are you greater than our father Jacob, she says? Now indeed, this well had some great beginnings. A a well that that Jacob had dug. And and it was impressive in depth at, at, you know, present day. People have seen this well, measured it, 75 feet. In modern times, it's it's a deep well. So this one was thinking, how can you top this? Right? Well, let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus' response now to this woman is that this water that she's coming for is never going to completely satisfy. But he desires to give her that which will satisfy. That which will never run out, will never dry up, will never lose its enjoyment. And again, Jesus, of course, is not speaking of a physical thirst or a physical need. He's speaking spiritually. You see, it's true that there's a a void in every person's heart, an emptiness of life that you can only be filled through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one that made you, and he knows exactly what you need to truly be satisfied. Pascal said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And we've heard that as a cliche oftentimes, but it's true. Because we try placing things in there that we think are, are going to bring enjoyment for us. We try filling that, that void, that God-shaped vacuum. We try filling it with things that we think is what I need to really enjoy life. Whether it be through, through money or drugs or, or relationships, drinking, adventure, fame perhaps. 
And people get blinded to think that perhaps these are going to be things that are going to satisfy me in this life and in this world. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of counterfeit quenchers in the world. There's a lot of things that the world is throwing out to you that you might partake of and think, oh, this is satisfying. But it satisfies for a short time and eventually dries up to where you begin to realize I need something more, something greater. That's why so many people that get addicted to something, they didn't start right up at the top. They start something small. And then over time, that starts to lose that effect. They need to get something greater that has a more impact in their life, a, a, a bigger high. And it keeps accelerating because these things are never meant to satisfy. But you see, Jesus gives the life, the abundant life. It's the difference between a stagnant puddle and like Niagara Falls, where it's just pouring out continuously. That's the life that Jesus wants to give you. This living water that becomes a, a fountain of water that is just bubbling over and won't run, run dry, as he says here. The water that I shall give him, verse, verse 14, the water that I shall give him, will, uh, give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Springs up into the fullness of life, everlasting life. That's what Jesus has for you through this free gift of salvation. And it's what this woman so desperately needed. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. But you see, she's still not grasping what Jesus is speaking of. She wants that water, but only so that she won't have to come back to this well any longer. She's not understanding the real need here that's before her. So, Jesus knows it's time now to reveal that to her. To reveal the deepest need, the spiritual need. She needs to be shown her condition. She needs to be shown her sin in a sense because conviction of sin will always precede the cleansing of sin. People need to hear the bad news before they'll be willing to accept the good news. And so Jesus takes us now in that direction as we look at this ministry unfold. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. So good. Jesus, just, he's so good. Hey, you know what? Let's stop talking about, let's just, let's bring your husband in this. Go call your husband. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now she's correct. She has no husband right now, but she doesn't want to get into the facts. She doesn't want to get into the whole picture. She's thinking, I'll just kind of lay low here. He won't know. And what does Jesus do? I love this. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. She says, yeah, you're not lying, I get it. You spoke rightfully. But let me reveal to you your situation, your condition. Your condition. You've had five husbands, and right now, you're just with a man that's not even your husband. Now, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He's not trying to embarrass her. He's simply trying to show her that she was striking out with finding satisfaction through what the world gives. This wasn't helping her. She's been in a, in a cycle of failed relationships. We don't know what caused all of it. We're not casting judgment here on this woman. But she has seen the futility of trying to find satisfaction through what the world can give. She's been in this cycle of failed relationships. And Jesus seeks to just simply bring that up. 
J. Vernon McGee said, one of the reasons she was not so popular with the women of the town was because she was too popular with the men of the town. That's, that could very well be very true. That's why she's coming to the well alone when nobody else is around. You know, there was a, a couple that was uh, making some arrangements for their wedding. They asked a, a bakery to inscribe on their wedding cake, 1 John four eighteen, which reads, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Well, the bakery got that mixed up, didn't write it down correctly. Instead of putting 1 John 4.18, they wrote on the wedding cake, John 4.18, which says, you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That would be a bit of a wedding shock right there, cutting into that cake right there. (laughs) Got to pay attention to the details, don't you? Just that one in front of John makes a big difference there. So, this Samaritan woman, she's, not been experiencing a lot of good in life. Failed relationships, broken hearts. She's empty, it would seem. At least she's been trying to find something that she'll never find through the world. But see, instead of dealing with that issue, what she does again is tries to deflect, which is so common. When you're talking to somebody about the gospel, and the minute you start to kind of Hit those sensitive spots about sin. What do people like to do? They try to deflect. They don't want to deal with it. That's where they get into all the other arguments. That's why it's important that we just keep pointing them to Jesus and what he's done for them and what they can have in him. Because see, the moment that the light shines in now, people often don't want to deal with what is being exposed or shown. That's why in in John chapter 3 verse 19, it said that people loved darkness rather than light. Because they don't want to deal with their condition. They don't want to see how messed up they are. Because we often like to think that we're a lot better than we are. Right? We, we don't have a problem oftentimes having a very high view of ourselves. But suddenly when the light of the Lord shines in and we get exposed to who we really are apart from him, we don't like it. That's why people run away from the light. They want to stay in the darkness. And this woman, she sees the light now coming in. She's being exposed to her condition. And she's trying to cover it up. She's trying to deflect here. So the woman says in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So there was an argument going on between the Samaritans and the Jews over the place of worship, even the style of worship, because... Uh, again, the Samaritans, when they began to intermarry, they adopted a lot of different things from other cultures and religions. And so they kind of had a bit of a mixed worship. And they said the place for us to worship is on Mount Gerizim. Of course, the Jews believed that the place to worship was there in Jerusalem at the temple. Obviously, that's where God said, you know, I will come in and, and meet with you here. So there's a big debate, a big struggle. The Samaritans saw that Mount Gerizim was the place that so many important things happened. They only believed, and here's what's important. The Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So they didn't take all the other books of the Bible into account or consideration. So everything that they saw really kind of happening was around Mount Gerizim with many of their patriarchs and and stuff. So they saw that as a, a very holy place. But Jesus, notice, he doesn't get caught up in this debate or argument. But he quickly declares that the place of worship is unimportant. You know, that's oftentimes the answer for a lot of people that bring up all these different arguments and debates where only they're trying to deflect and not get to the real issue. We can just sometimes say, that's not really important. 
Here's what is important. Where are you at with God? Where do you stand before God? See, Jesus says to her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So because the Samaritans just looked at the first five books of the Bible, they didn't have a complete picture of who God was. When Jesus says that salvation is of the Jews, this basically means that the Jewish people are the ones that God selected to be the nation that the Messiah would come through. They'd be the ones to preserve God's holy word, the scriptures, and they were called to be a witness to the world. They weren't any more special than anybody else. They're not saved just because they're Jews. But salvation through Jesus that came to the line of the Jews, they preserved God's word. They're to be a witness. They're to be ones that are pointing people to what God has done. And they need to follow that just like anybody else does. They didn't own salvation. And when Jesus says that we need to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, well, the worship of the Father in spirit means that we're to be linked to him in our spirit. Because it is the spirit, this spirit in us that, that is the source of our highest dreams and thoughts and ideals and desires. The true worship then is when each of us, through that spirit, attains to that kind of intimacy, relationship, friendship with God. Genuine worship does not consist in coming to a certain place, nor in going through a certain ritual or liturgy, nor even in bringing certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of us, speaks to and meets with God. Himself immortal and invisible. It's how we connect with him. And we recognize the nature of God that, that he is spirit. It says right there, God is spirit. God doesn't reside in a physical building. He is everywhere. Therefore, our, our worship is not limited to church or a religious atmosphere. God wants us to worship him wherever we are in spirit. And remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Unless you're born of water and the spirit. Cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, it's linked to that need for salvation. God desires those to worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, you come into that new life. Regeneration. Transformation. You've received that new life in and through Jesus Christ. You're the spirit now at work in you. You've been born of the spirit. So that you can now connect to God. How we need to do that. And then to worship in truth means that we need to come in the right way. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way that we come. We need to worship in truth. We need to worship in the right way. We need to, we need to be honest with ourselves and understand who we are and understand our, our need for God and, and worship in that truth. But our hearts need to be walking in honesty and sincerity in these things. Recognizing how lost we are apart from him and how we need him. Because what did Jesus have to combat with the religious leaders? Is they were doing everything well on an outward way. They looked like the most spiritual religious people. But yet, they were far from God. 
Because they weren't walking in truth. They weren't walking and worshiping God in the spirit being truly connected to him. Jesus had a say and he quotes from Isaiah, Matthew 15, 8, first part of 9. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me. So God desires those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Are you in relationship with him? Are you born of the spirit? New life in Christ. Are you coming in a truthful way? Understanding who you are worshiping and coming in through the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Otherwise, if we're going about things in our own way, our own system, then we're just worshiping in vain. God desires those that worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Again, she tries deflecting the issue, the real issue, and the real need, and she wants to leave it up to another. Well, I will deal with this at a later time. When the Messiah comes, the Christ, we'll figure this out later. The Bible says now, today, is the day of salvation. Why put off for tomorrow when you are not guaranteed of tomorrow? The question is, are you right with God today? Have you received this free gift of living water, salvation, newness of life, fresh life in him? Have you received that for yourself today? If you haven't, don't put it off. Don't deflect. Don't try to make excuses. Because that universal condition in this room is that we're all sinners guilty before God because of sin. Every single one of us. But Jesus has done something about it. He came and died on a cross to pay the penalty for that sin. And to bring forgiveness and cleansing that those that put their faith in Jesus can be made new. Saved. Forgiven of sin. And have new life in him. Living water. Springing up into everlasting life. Praise the Lord for that. So Jesus reveals to her, I am he. Now, we started this message saying that Jesus was always sure never to reveal prematurely who he was, but this is like the only time that he does in the Gospels until his trial later on. Only time he reveals who he is. Why? Because it's a Samaritan. He knows the Jewish leaders aren't going to have anything to do with them. They're not going to listen to their testimony. They're not going to be having conversations with the Samaritan. So Jesus knows this truth is kind of in safe hands. Because all those in Jerusalem are not going to be hearing that at all. So he's slowly just breaking down all the debates and the arguments, the excuses. All she needs to do is just open her heart to him and receive this free gift. Well, we're going to pick it up next week in verse 27. And we'll continue on to see how this all kind of unfolds and and what came out of this and we'll see the importance of sometimes just reaching out to the one and the fruit that can come of it but understand here how we need to be patient with people and not give up on people because jesus could have (laughs) if i were jesus i would have been like well this ain't going anywhere after the first couple rejections or deflections this ain't going over. This person just isn't good. But yet Jesus just remains patient 
and gracious and loving towards her. He didn't walk away thinking that she's not going to get it. He's concerned for every soul. May we have that kind of patience with those that we're praying for, with those that we're witnessing to, and I pray that you are. Let me remind you of this whole kind of campaign we've introduced this year, you know, plus one, bringing somebody with you to church, just one. What a difference that would make if all of us at some point this year just bring one person with us to church where they can hear the gospel, where they can find life in Jesus Christ and the fruit that can come from that. We'll see how that unfolds here. But let's look at just, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and, and we'll, we'll sing that song the way again here. Just a few application points here just to kind of take away with this here. First of all, are you living missionally? Being aware of the needs around you and being willing to come alongside others with the good news. Secondly, are you finding your pleasure in this life in Jesus? Because only he brings lasting satisfaction and joy. Everything else is a counterfeit that runs out, that runs dry, that leaves you empty. Don't get in that, in that cycle of failed things. Attach yourself to Jesus and allow that living water to flow in. It's that spring of life welling up to everlasting life. Let's stand together here today and let's just... Close with this song of worship and afterwards we'll be dismissed. Our front will be open for prayer. Men will be up here and people will be up here to pray with you and for you. Uh, We love to do so. So have a great Sunday and uh, let's sing this song here.